Welcome to Third Fridays, the monthly legal talk show from Lois LLC featuring attorney Christian Cisan. This is the original forum in which real attorneys discuss workers' compensation issues, share their opinions, and engage in colorful conversations. This show showcases diverse perspectives of attorneys handling workers' comp cases, including case law trends, practical litigation strategies, and hot topics. Here's your host, Christian Cisan. March 2022 edition of the Third Fridays podcast. I'm your host, Christian Cisan, welcoming you back. And the last episode, we had something really interesting. We had uh, Ian Haberstroh. Uh, well, actually, you know, I just learned his last name is pronounced Haberstroh. Yeah. You know, we were on the podcast and I said it. And then after the podcast, we were talking about it and we had a client call. So he announced his name on the call and he said Haberstrow. And I put put us on mute and I said, really? <laughs> Over a year? Over a year you're gonna let me mispronounce your last name? But it's Haberstrow. So now I'm just gonna call him that forever. Like, because that's the way I'll remember. I've been <laughs> but, pronouncing it wrong the whole time. Right? It's like <laughs> someone says one. it. Well, someone <laughs> says it and then like people, when it's not correct, people assume that's correct. I did. Right? Yeah. And especially, you know, coming from me, like, you know, I, I don't personally care too. Like my last name is mispronounced all the time, so I get it. But it's like, <laughs> you know, someone you work with every day who says that. Wow. Okay. Well, that was neither here nor there. <laughs> Ian Haberstrow uh, was on last month's podcast where we talked about different types of scenarios where we would not want an IME, like the typical uh, you know, claims handling might involve the scheduling or procurement of an IME, but there are cases where we may actually want to forego that uh, possibility. It might be better exposure-wise to not do so. Today, uh, we're going to talk about something a little bit different, something a little bit uh, out of my comfort zone uh, with respect to a different jurisdiction, but also talk about you know a development in uh, that jurisdiction's case law that might have some impact on your cases. And we'll see how that interplays with New York and, and um, see if there's anything uh, we can forecast as far as developments in the law. So to do that, I'm going to welcome uh, my partner here at Lois Law Firm. Uh, she is a member of the New Jersey Ethics Committee uh, in Hudson County. And she's also the co-chair of our firm's diversity committee, so very well-rounded, the Karen Vincent. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So two things when we were, you know, talking shop about what this podcast would be about, right? Uh, This parking lot case development. And also... Uh, you know, I guess a post-COVID-19 development in New Jersey uh, Workers' Comp Court going back in person. Yeah. Why don't we start there, right? Like, it, it, what? why has that taken so long to be a thing? I think, um, so we were always in court leading into COVID-19. Then we did the shutdown, and that was the first time in New Jersey that we ever tried out virtual hearings. So for the first couple of months, I think... We thought it was going to be a temporary thing and a lot of things got adjourned, a lot of confusion on how to even conduct uh, a virtual hearing. Then we started getting some protocol in place. In New Jersey, what they wound up doing is each judge in each jurisdiction had their own preferences. So then the next couple of months was learning each judge's preference, whether it's calling in, using Teams, some oh, use wow. So there was no, Zoom. there was no uniformity across the state? None whatsoever. 
Um, so they, they basically would email us their preferences and we would have to then hope that we got it right each week. Um, some judges even would start earlier. Normally in, uh, in New Jersey court is eight to 4.30. We had some judge, but normally you don't go on the record or do anything until 9 a.m. We had judges starting at 8 a.m., some at 11. Some would oh, schedule wow. hearings in the morning. Some would have open court where you would wait online until your case was called. So it really was kind of all over the place. Wow. On every single day. I know, like, because that's definitely different from New York where the, uh, the pandemic actually didn't really change our perspective from hearing appearances because we were all virtual before then. We had all the technology set up. As soon as that first hearing point upstate went like virtual as an option, we right. saw this being a thing where everybody would appear virtually forever, possibly. And it was a great success in New York, uh, a lot of cost savings for our clients. Um, so in New Jersey, coming back to court, is that a good development for you guys? Or do you feel that, uh, you know, we had a good thing going with virtual appearances in New Jersey? It, it probably depends what side of the table you're asking, because in New Jersey, the way we would work courtless is we, as respondents attorneys, have what's called regular days. And we work on a three-week cycle, week one, week two, week three. And what the courts do for the defense firms is when we have enough cases with that uh, jurisdiction, they put all our cases on one day in that cycle in front of the same judge. So as a defense attorney, we were able to predict and tell the client every third week on Wednesday were before judge whoever. And so all the cases get put on that day. Now, petitioner's attorneys, they don't have regular days. They just go wherever their court listing is. So in any given day, they could have cases listed in multiple jurisdictions and also the same jurisdiction, but multiple judges, because again, it's going to go on the side. Uh, it's going to be listed before that respondent's regular day in court. So it worked very easily for respondents because we would get a lot of cases done in one day. So on any given day, I can go into Jersey City Court and have 37 cases listed and get through all of them. Petitioners' attorneys may go from one court to another. They're going down the hall. Um, so they actually really liked having the virtual hearings because it allowed them to take okay. on more clients. Sure. Um, a lot of petitioners' attorneys, they, they're in a certain area. So you have the Atlantic City attorneys, you have the South Jersey attorneys, you have people who only go North Jersey. So I think for them, they started taking on clients statewide because they didn't have to physically drive there or have an office closer to that location to meet with the clients. So um, if you ask most of them, they prefer being virtual. Okay. Now, is virtual still an option or is it now like just mandatory in person for New Jersey? So similar to COVID-19, it depends. Okay. And it's being left to every judge. So I think right now, <laughs> so the courts reopened yesterday and we've already been flooded with emails from multiple judges giving their preferences. Um, what I did notice is a lot of judges, I think, got comfortable with uh, being virtual after, I, I guess it's right, been so, a little over two years. Well, I guess if the state's going to allow them to make their own rules, right, yeah. then they might, they're might they just going to let them decide if they're going to be virtual or not. Right. Are there any judges that do a hybrid? Like I'd want to do some virtual and then like you guys 
appear in the afternoons. Like in the afternoons, I like going to court. Well, what, so what the, a lot of them are doing is regular conferences, uh, simple settlements can remain virtual, testimony, trials. They're, um, most judges are, are requesting you come into court for that. Other judges are opening the door even further, saying if all parties agree to be virtual, they'll keep it virtual. If any of the parties want it in court, regardless of what the hearing type is, they're going to bring you back into court. Okay. What about, I guess, um, so if, if petitioners and attorneys, right, uh, they prefer virtual so they could, like you said, they could take on more clients. They don't have to farm stuff out. Uh, it makes sense for them to take on more if you can just hop on to different court systems virtually. Um, you know, from a cost perspective for the defense, if it doesn't change our uh, likelihood of success on the merits or anything like that, do you foresee a lot of cases where both the petitioner and the respondent's attorney do want to uh, go virtual if the judge will allow it? I think a lot of attorneys want to stay virtual, but I, I kind of question why. For me personally, uh, if there's going to be testimony, I prefer to be in court. I think sure. there's a lot uh, lost when you're not looking at the witness, even the petitioner on the stand. We've had issues where, you know, you question where the petitioner is at the time of testimony, there if someone else is in the room, same thing with doctors, course examining doctors, you kind of lose some of that one-on-one -on -one interaction. Where I think we've learned um, through trial techniques of reading people, and that's completely lost on a computer screen. Um, even trying to cross-examine them on medical, um, we waste a lot of time holding up medical records in front of a camera to make sure they're looking at exactly the same thing we're looking at. Interesting. So um, even things, uh, there have been issues of sequestering witnesses. You can't really guarantee someone's not in the room. I know we've had several instances where we've had to ask someone to pick up the camera and twirl around the room. But, I mean, at that point, you're really just right. wasting time because you don't know. And if someone takes a break, you don't know what they do. Um I'm sure you've had instances where you're in court and you know that's the petitioner and you're able to see the petitioner walk through the parking lot, how they interact outside of the courtroom. We lose all of that, um, which I'm not a big fan of. Also, it, it, I mean, it, it does save costs. You're not bringing a doctor in. It's a little cheaper to have a doctor testify uh, on camera. But I don't know that always. that's always the answer, yes. especially if... Parts of the reason sometimes we want to go to trial is to flesh out serious issues where... That can't be fleshed out virtually. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Like, I think that there's definitely the side of the coin that makes sense for that. Um, do you think that uh, keeping that in mind, results have been different or the same for petitioners or respondents when they went virtual? Like, have cases been adjudicated differently because of maybe those difficulties? I feel like one, it's taking longer okay. to be able to schedule these um, virtual hearings where you would have thought it would be easier because people don't have to go anywhere. Somehow scheduling has become harder and um, I feel it's harder to pick up where we left off because there's even more of a gap. Um, you know, you, you can have eight weeks, 12 weeks, 
go by. And I think even though uh, some of it might logistically be a lot of the doctors, they're now starting to reopen. So their scheduling is harder to pinpoint them down to get into uh, a hearing even virtually because they're starting to bring their own patients back. Okay. But um, So it seems like you're in favor of this development to go back into court. For trials and, and motion hearings. And I would also say for more intensive settlements, when you have something that's, you know, a broken bone where it's an everyday case we hear every, you know, all the time, I see no reason of doing an affidavit, submitting everything to the court in advance. But when you're dealing with lumbar fusions where you know this petitioner may have increased disability going on down the road and this claim can eventually become a big case, I think I prefer them to come into court so that I can see them face to face when they're listing off their complaints. I can read their face. I can read their mannerisms um, and get a, and paint a better picture for the client at the time of settlement as to why we're paying what we're paying and what what the condition of the petitioner is at that time. Okay, that makes sense. All right. Uh, so, you know, I think that we'll see a little bit of hybrid then if... Uh, you know, the case calls for it and the judge permits it, you know, I guess a lot of factors are at play, uh, then we could be going into court versus still uh, going virtual, depending on uh, those factors as well. Uh, but we really came together to talk about uh, this development in the law, right? Uh, these parking lot cases and the you know decision of whether an accident in that type of situation would be compensable under New Jersey law or not. Uh, so before Governor Murphy put his hands on it, what was the standard in New Jersey? Okay, so there was uh, the Lamar case is the Hirsch case. And what that was, um, there was a woman who was uh, a county employee, and the way they used their parking was by seniority. So the parking lot that was attached to the building, she did not have security to, or seniority, um, to park in that lot. So the county actually rented another lot that was a private company, and it was, I believe, about a block and a half away. So uh, the employees didn't have to pay for that lot. They didn't have to park there either, but they didn't have to pay for it. The county paid for it. So she parks in that lot, and then she's walking to the office, and she gets hit by a car. Um so obviously, we both know in New York, New Jersey, there's going to be a civil claim uh, for the motor vehicle accident itself. But she filed a workers' comp case. Uh, we have several factors that go in when we examine uh, a situation or a scenario like that. We have the going and coming rule, uh, which basically says on your way to work and on your way home from work is not compensable. Then you have the premises rule, which basically says that from the time that you enter the premises of your employer, uh, employment commences. So, um, uh, in the Hirsch case is when they really examined, uh, whether the employer owned and controlled the parking lot. And although the county paid for that lot, they had, they didn't own the lot. They didn't control it in terms of upkeep, maintenance, snow removal, any of that type of thing. And then she was also walking on, uh, you know, public street on her way to the office. So that case, they ultimately said that it was not compensable. And that became the standard on what we call our parking lot cases when someone's injured, is we go directly to who controlled and owned the parking lot itself. Um, I guess if that is the case, then 
it almost told employers in New Jersey, don't own parking lots. Correct. <laughs> rent, rent them yeah, out. Yeah, rent or, them out. Rent them out uh, with a third-party vendor. You know, maybe even put it farther away from your Farther location. away and tell them you don't have to park there. You could park there. We don't right, know. don't require it. Correct. Right? Correct. Um, and the Hirsch case, I believe, was in 2014 when we were talking about it. Here we are eight years later, um, and Governor Murphy uh, decides to just flip the script. Correct. So what does he do or say that's now changing this Hirsch case? So this statute, 771, was introduced, and there's been a lot of debate going through. It did pass on January 10th, and what he does is essentially expand it by saying that if the employer provides parking... Um, so really where we get stuck is the word provide because in in a sense you go to a mall and there's parking there but there could be another vendor that pays for those lots um you have the strip malls is a common one where uh they're only renting a space in the strip mall but the parking lot is completely different ownership so what's going to be interesting is how a judge applies the word provides right um because if, if it no longer is automatically seen as controlled or owned, uh, essentially it may become such a liberally applied word that uh, every parking lot imaginable becomes compensable in the state. And I guess the, the, the worry and what we're keeping our eye on is New Jersey is notoriously known to be petitioner-oriented in that sense. So our New Jersey is already in a no-fault state in that any accident occurring while you're working at no fault of the employer. It never matters whether the employer did wrong at all. At all. So it's already uh, kind of the legislative intent is to look to provide benefits to the petitioner. So I think this, in their eyes, is just expanding on that legislative intent by saying, okay, we're going to give a bigger scope of what we're going to cover. Um, the so that's, what a, that's what legislation is, right? I mean, usually <laughs> in our standards, uh, in our industry, legislation doesn't come in to uh, provide less coverage to employees. Uh, so, I mean, that's certainly not surprising. Uh, do you see that... You know, we just talked about, for example, with Hirsch, like maybe it's a message to employers to not own their own parking structure, not require it. Could there now be a response from employers in New Jersey to say, well, we're not even talking about parking. You can park wherever you want. Like you can park five minutes away, 50 minutes away, uh, the lot like that is in this strip mall or near it, I have nothing to do with. This is the company that you know maintains it, so on and so forth. Could employers essentially do that? I mean, they're, uh, that's going to be the, the interesting thing to watch is because there's almost that temptation of saying, we don't provide parking. Right. You're on your own. And I think that's, that's almost backing employers into that situation because um, I, I guess absent having a lot that they don't own where they don't even offset parking if there's prices. They have to, they would have to um, disconnect any relationship with the parking outside of a public street. So I think the employers that are on um, uh, 
you know, a residential street where there's street parking, they're, they're going to be fine because sure. street parking is never going to be considered. They can't provide street parking, right? Correct. They don't have the ability to do that. Unless they own spots and then they, right. so uh, outside of that, I think there's going to be a lot of cases that go to trial and someone's going to have to appeal it and get some sort of clarification on the statute because the way it reads, it conflicts with the premises rule. Um, and, and, and to be, and to include a word that is, can be defined so many different ways and the scope be so expansive as to how it gets applied. We predict it's going to get applied across the board. The other issue we're having is that it doesn't specify whether this is retroactive. Um, it takes effect immediately, but does that mean cases that were filed a day before, are they prior to the change or because they're still pending and not settled. So do we have a situation um, where we have to look at every pending case and do a full stop and say, okay, all these defenses we raise, we have to take another look. Um, the other thing is it doesn't say we can't make the argument about uh, owned and controlled. Um, I think that's still going to be our strongest uh, argument to at least offset liability. It's the fact that, um, you know, before that was our win, you know. Right. And, you know, I guess if uh, there was this way of going about it to, you know, I guess define what provides means or use uh, prior legal principles that have been used in courts or these types of cases to help influence uh, decisions like compensability in that nature. I don't think judges would be averse to that, right? I mean, that's something that they would typically hear. I would actually imagine that if it were to be applied retroactively, there'd be like, what's like, you no, know, that slippery slope argument. Mm -hmm. Like Governor Murphy is just going to have enemies on, like in the judiciary now. Because this is right. one thing to, to override what like the New Jersey Supreme Court says is law. Like, okay, fine. You have the ability to do that. Go ahead and do that. If you're going to reopen every case that's ever been litigated since Hirsch in 2014, then judges are not going to be happy with having to deal with that. Right. right? And I, I doubt that's the way it's going to go. Um, I think our bigger question is going to be the cases that are listed now. Right. So cases filed today the law is going to apply, but we also have, I mean, I alone probably have 15 cases where I'm defending parking lot cases that now the question is, does the whole analysis change because this law changed, even though these cases are already pending? Right, right. I, and, you know, the when you had sent me the, uh, the text from that uh, legislation, I also looked at that clause where it says, an employee shall be deemed to be in the course of employment while the employee travels directly from the parking area to the place of employment prior to reporting for work. And while the employee, and it's like, you know, after, right? Mm -hmm. Like directly. I mean, what does that even really mean? Yeah. Because the only way for an employer to find out whether it's direct or not is to like, you know, look at timestamps when they, you know, interviews, uh, maybe even put cameras like where the person is parking and then you're you're backing the employer into a situation where they're providing that space if they have all this control over what's going on there yeah so I, I mean how would an employer defend the idea that you know the employee didn't directly go from the parking lot to 
the employment. And that's and that's a really good question because it, it almost opens the door for these tangent arguments for them to make or for us to even raise. Because when we look at the going and coming rule on your way to work, on your way home, some of the um, some of the exceptions are if you're on a special mission, if you're on a business trip, but then they look at things called standard deviations versus a deviation where they talk about someone's on a business trip and they leave the hotel and they go to this convention and they get into an accident. So they're on the business trip. So you're thinking, okay, the entire business trip is, is covered in terms of when they're going to the hotel, to the convention as well, but they stop at a diner for breakfast. So the, the courts start looking at, is, is it, is it a standard deviation? Is it something a normal person would do? They're picking up coffee. Um, did they, did they go, they even look at how, how far off course did they go? Did they go 20 miles? Did they stop and see a movie? Um, you know, and we've had those situations where we, we even had a case where the employee actually was killing time in between appointments by going to movies and he got into an accident, leaving the movie to go to his next uh, he was a, a traveling nurse, his next patient, and we were able to get that case dismissed. But now that opens the door on this because in this situation, as you said, what if they go to that parking lot and they and two blocks away from that parking lot is a Dunkin' Donuts and right. they go to that Dunkin' Donuts first? Is there any way that you would know um, aside from interrogatories and counting that the petitioner is going to tell the truth and say, I, I went and what is the court going to look at as a standard deviation? Because if you have a lot that's half a block away, but they go two blocks away, you know, distance wise, it could be the completely opposite direction. Well, that's my thought process, too, is, is you know, if you're going to back me into a corner as an employer, I'm going to can I I'm, I might just subpoena your credit card statement. Like, I want to know exactly <laughs> what you did from 845 to 855 before you entered my premises at 9 a.m. Right. Uh, you know, you talk about Dunkin Donuts, right? Did, how far did you veer off to Dunkin Donuts? Like mm-hmm. just because you like that brand versus the Starbucks that that's right outside my office. Is that a deviation? You know, it's it's something that, you know, when the legislature comes in and redefines what courts have made to be clear to both parties. Mm-hmm. They're actually making it unclear, and I think, in the manner of serving public policy, right? Because you were to talk about 771, you're saying there's more coverage to employees, right? That, that would, that's how I would promote it if I were Governor Murphy's office, right? But really, if you're doing something that makes it a little bit less clear potentially people like us are going to go in there and attack every single word that you put in that and make it uh, defined by the courts anyway. So I'm not necessarily sure that the, the, you know, the, I guess the tactic meets with the strategy of what they want to actually do. I I see more uh, employers and defense attorneys like you in New Jersey saying, well, I'm not just going to lay down just because Governor Murphy said this. Look at all these, you know, things that we have to address, right. direct, provide, like, you know, this is our job every day, right? De- defining the intent of what these words mean to a particular case. I also think it also teaches employers. Um, it almost puts them in a situation where they're saying, we thought we were doing something nice for our employees. Right. 
paying for their parking or providing in their mind, the word providing comes up, providing parking. And now they're stuck with, um, we have no ownership of this, this parking lot. We have no control whether they have potholes or, um, if it's even safe, because if a crime's committed in there and the, and the person gets injured and then you're, you're now also including them crossing a street and coming down a sidewalk. So you're expanding an area that the employer absolutely has no control over. And, um, under the original parking lot cases, that's always the word control and ownership. Ownership was more of a clear cut, uh, thing, but control became a key issue because how are you going to hold them responsible and liable for injuries where they had no way of helping avoid it or causing it or anything? So, and they can't even change. The first employee gets injured and the next day, another one, because it's the same type of issue, or let's say they keep tripping on the same part of the sidewalk and the employer can't even fix the problem. Right, right. If you don't, if you don't have the control over it, right, you're, you're basically saying, well, I'm going to be on the hook for all of these injuries that aren't workplace injuries because I can't control the you know the, the pretext and the factors that go into this parking lot but i'm going to be hit with it just because there's this new yeah. legislative update that uh, yeah i mean it's it's a big problem you know in new york right you, you have the coming and going rule uh but of course the courts made it more difficult and they actually you know i laugh every time i see this but they defined like an exception of the coming and going rule to be the gray area you know, as if we wanted to make things perfectly unclear, we're going to label it something that is the definition of unclear, right? Like, you know, like <laughs> yeah. the midpoint between black and white, white we're going to say it's gray and then you just litigate it. And so it actually makes it tougher to for employers and carriers in New York to accept those claims because when you say there's a gray area, you're giving the defense an opportunity to deny compensability in every type of situation. And so we have to go to the facts and circumstances of that case to figure out, you know, some of the same things, right? Like how far of a deviation was it? Uh, was this risk also shared by the public or, or, or non-employees? And, you know, it's, it's funny to me that when New Jersey establishes something that's very clear, right? Hirsch is clear as to what the law should be. Right. Like the actors who then change it, whether it be the courts, like in New York, to establish these exceptions or Governor Murphy, a legislative figure, uh, you know, it makes it harder. It makes it harder for risk professionals that we deal with every day to say, uh, you know, this is something that I know is, go is definitely true and I'm going to accept compensability or I'm going to deny it and I know I'm going to win. Right. Right. Because that's what our clients really want. They want that predictability to say, you know, don't litigate every single thing under the sun. And we don't want to do that either because we also don't think it benefits our clients. But when these actors play these roles and, and, and make these updates that make lives more difficult, it's, it's almost like a necessary consequence of it. Yeah. So... And I, I don't know, I guess, do you see, uh, you, you mentioned you see that judges are going to apply it very liberally, yeah. right? Just because of the nature of workers' compensation and almost, you know, being in lockstep with Governor Murphy. Uh, if 
employers were to litigate this in New Jersey and do this thing that we're talking about right now, how long would it take for a judge to determine compensability? Like if a case happened today and we think it fits squarely within that period of whether we can litigate provides or directly as like words within that legislative update, how long would it take for a petitioner to receive benefits or, or even just get a decision from a judge? Probably, I mean, realistically, if they're if they're treating so in New Jersey we don't we wouldn't start a trial until they're they're done com, uh, treating, unless um, they file a motion for med intent where they're they're asking the court to order us to provide medical benefits. So at that point, what we would probably do is deny compensability, and the case would be bifurcated um, just on the issue of the, of of the parking lot, right. and um, at that point we would try it. And uh, we would, in in this case, I would envision whoever loses has to appeal it and has right. to take it up because it's the only way that they're going to clarify. And to me, it just seems kind of ironic that the whole point of what we're going to wind up trying is based on specific words they used in the statute. And it's the thought that if we read this, and I'm sure you read it once and thought that's an odd way to word it, and yet that's how it was worded and that's how it passed. Right. Almost like they knew they were setting it up to for it to have to go to trial. Yeah, it's a good point, actually. With the, the, the loser of the trial decision is appealing. I already okay. know that. It's, they're going to have to. Right? Because if it's vague enough to have its own sort of gray area in New Jersey, then what do you have to lose by appealing? So you're going right. to appeal it, you're, you're gonna prolong this type of situation. And really, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's unfortunate to get to a point, you know, where things were clear and now they're not, and they're not going to be for a while. Right. But that's how it goes, I and guess. And then at some point, that's gonna be the petitioner who is, the test petitioner and they may go without benefits this whole time while we litigate specific words in the legislation in the dictionary yeah right. <laughs> yeah where we're pulling up webster's dictionary urban right. dictionary every definition urban dictionary. yeah i guess everything at this point will be admissible to see right. what the judge wants to latch on to right well okay, i guess because if judges don't have preferences then maybe they can yep. take a dictionary right oh do you like that segue <laughs> oh man i like that one okay well i think that was a great discussion on a new development in the law uh you know for those cases karen that uh you are very gung-ho about going back to court and cross-examining a petitioner or a doctor. Good luck. Um, so uh, is there any anything, any final send-off that uh, people should take out of this? You know, we've been talking about these types of things for you know, over half an hour. What's like a takeaway that our clients or prospects can look at these parking lot cases and say, like, that's what I have to know? Well, I would say, looping it back to us, that's why I think we're good at what we do because we read this statute and we look at every single word and people's initial reaction in this kind of thing is, oh, it's expanding it and that's great. It's going to mean all of my clients get more, you know, these benefits and we do the, whoa, whoa, 
wait a minute, not, not, not so quickly, you know, and we immediately start looking at every angle that we can attack it and at least raise these defenses. Um, I know New York has section 32, we have section 20, even if it's something that can bounce us into a section 20 settlement to close off future benefits. Um, but our, our reaction on any of these is always to look at it intensely and immediately start thinking of what our next steps are going to be. Right, right. Okay, well, uh, for Karen Vincent, uh, this is Christian Cisan reminding you to defend from day one.